Hello and welcome to the Peace Love Plants Podcast. I am your host, Marco Knox. Misinformation is everywhere, and it's becoming increasingly more difficult to navigate through the sticky web to find the truth that we all seek. Moreover, it can be downright frustrating. This leads me to my guest, Dr. Garth Davis, a man that helps all of us circumvent the bad information being shared through numerous outlets with evidence-based science. You may recognize Dr. Davis from the groundbreaking documentary, What the Health, or his book, Proteinaholic, How Our Obsession with Meat is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. He's on a mission to save lives, and in this episode, Dr. Davis shares with us how he transitioned to a whole food plant-based lifestyle, how that impacted his medical practice, and ultimately, the betterment of his patients. He's unwavering in his message, and as you'll soon hear, he is the genuine article. So, let's dive right in and have a listen to my conversation with Dr. Garth Davis in this episode titled, Evidence-Based. Dr. Garth Davis, welcome to the Peace Love Plants podcast, my friend. How are you doing today? Doing okay. I guess as good as you can be in this kind of crazy situation we're in. No doubt. And you know, on that note, thank you for joining me, especially in this uncertain time that we're all experiencing. So in my introduction, our listeners heard a quick overview of, of what you do and what you're about. And having been in a TV series, a couple of documentaries, including What the Health, you're a very recognizable doctor within the plant-based movement. And as you know, I follow you on social, and you seem like a really grounded guy. And at the same time, you're not afraid to call out BS when you see it. I love that about you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> People either love it or hate it. I get a lot of hate mail, too. <laughs> I can imagine. But in as many people as the whole food plant-based space has reached, there's still a lot of people out there that haven't been reached yet. So with that in mind, let's set the stage here for those that may not know who you are. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. So let's go back to your early life. Help paint the picture for me. What was it like growing up in Houston, Texas, right? And yes. what are some of the life events that helped shape your path for wanting to get into medicine? Uh, my father was a surgeon. So, um, you know, early on, that was an influence. Kind of grew up, you know, respecting what he did. Kids would go and play catch with their dad when they were younger. I'd go and operate with my dad and go on rounds with my dad. So I was, you know, indoctrinated early. In fact, a lot of my friends make fun of me because in one of our high school football games, I got knocked out. And uh, as I was waking up on the field, I kept saying, can I still be a doctor? Can I still be a doctor? Can I still be a doctor? Uh, so, yeah, being a doctor was like uh, something I always wanted to be. It was kind of a lifelong dream. That's fascinating. Just So you have kids now, right? I do, yes. Yeah. Do they, do they go to the hospital with you at all? Yeah. The, I mean, I've taken them to rounds before, but they're, I mean, they're, they're young, 13 and 11, uh, though I was going at that age with my father. They don't, they don't seem particularly interested right now. So uh, they don't have the same interest I had. <laughs> Times are different too. I think they it might be really different. a little different. Yeah. So you went to the University of Texas, Baylor School of Medicine, and you completed your surgery residency at the University of Michigan. Now, I grew up in Michigan, Dr. Davis. Please tell me Michigan is your favorite. Can I at least get a Go Blue out of you? Oh, Go Blue for sure. Awesome. You know, it was tough because um, University of Texas played Michigan in the Rose Bowl. That, what was that? That, was, uh, that must have been about 2001 or 2002. So I uh, actually went to that game. I didn't know who to root. I was like, I love both teams. I don't know who to root for. I win or lose either way. Right. Was that when Vince Young was the Texas quarterback, I believe? Yeah. Man, Uh that was a game. That was a game. That was a game. It was back and forth. One of the best games I've ever been to. 
Yeah, very legit. It didn't work out for me being a Michigan guy, but yeah. I got to say that was probably and, one of my uh, favorites. What was the Michigan quarterback, Chad? Chad Henney. Henney, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. played great too. It was a great game. It was a, that was a lot of fun. I was surprised to see that Vince Young didn't do more in the NFL. I mean, when I watched that game, I was like, this guy's, this is the next Joe Montana right there. You're watching him. He had, you know, he had some psychological issues and things he had to deal with that got in the way. Yeah, definitely. So you're out of medical school and you start applying what you learned. You went back to Texas and established a Davis Medical Clinic. How long did you practice there? Well, yeah, so I joined my father in practice. And when I just joined, weight loss surgery was kind of just getting on its way. I mean, there's been weight loss surgery for years and years and years, but the laparoscopic where we would do these small incisions with better outcomes was really just taking off. And a lot of the science behind obesity, you know, the obesity crisis was really burgeoning. And um, so the chairman of the department told me that, you know, we really need someone who's going to specialize in doing this surgery. So I started, now we have these fellowships for, weight loss surgery, but they didn't really back then. So I went around to other surgeons to see what they were doing and um, started doing weight loss surgery as well as general surgery and started getting a real interest in, in that field. And during this time when you're helping the patients, I mean, you're dealing with serious obesity and, and, and by way of bariatric surgery and recommending healthier eating and exercise. And mm. I read somewhere that... Not that, yet. Not yet? So we're not there yet? No, you know, it's, it's so funny. It's funny that you should say that because you would assume that if someone's a weight loss surgeon, they're going to be talking about diet and exercise, but that's not at all how it was. In the beginning, it was all about the surgery. I would go to these conferences and you'd be thousands of weight loss surgeons in there and we would talk for a week about really detailed science. I mean, really detailed science, but none of that science was about how these people got obese to begin with. It wasn't about diet. If it was about diet, it was very cursory. I wrote a book. Yeah, it must have been about 2006 that I wrote the book that was um, entitled The Expert's Guide to Weight Loss Surgery. And in that book, I barely talk about diet. And when I do, I just say eat high protein. And the funny thing about that book is I researched that book like crazy, like I researched most things, but I didn't research the diet part that much because it's almost like we didn't really think diet even mattered, as crazy as that sounds, or that maybe it does matter, but we don't know exactly what diet to tell the patient, or maybe there is a right diet, but the patient's not going to follow it anyway. So we might as well just cut them open, just do the surgery because we know that works and that's it. Wow, that's amazing. So even back then, all the schooling you had gone through, those three major universities I just touched on, nothing on nutrition really, just kind of skimmed over. Very skimmed over. Wow. Why is that? I mean, has that changed now? I think it is changing now. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, we're much more aware of the fact that, you know, food could be a medicine or a poison. I think a lot of the younger doctors are, are really capturing that. I still worry because I hear doctors give dietary advice a lot right now. And then I question where did they get that training on that dietary advice? Have they studied a lot of the times it sounds to me like they're they like now they know that diet has an effect, but they don't know which diet is the right diet. There's a lot of relativism. There's a lot of, well, my diet does this and my diet does that. And so there's two mistakes I see a lot coming from doctors is this worked for me. Therefore, it should work for my patients. Just because the plant-based diet worked for me is not why I started recommending it to patients. And then I see a lot of people that are just like, just they just, whatever they heard last, which is usually who's loudest in the media, gets the attention. So they know that diet, I mean, it's good to know that diet has an effect. They know that junk food is bad for you, and we all know that. So most of these diets are eliminating ultra-processed foods, or all of them. And so whether you're doing high protein or high vegetables or from that becomes 
somewhat not really evidence-based from a lot of doctors. Yeah. So when was it that you kind of had your epiphany, so to speak, when you realized, all right, because I heard you talk about it where, where patients were actually starting to come back to you. Yeah, yeah, sure. So you see, look, you ever see the movie Awakenings where the guy had like Parkinson's and they came up with a cure for it and he's so excited he's cured and then yeah. he remisses and how bad it is to go into remission. See the same thing with obesity, right? Even after a weight loss surgery, you can see people regain weight, not as much as with diets, but certainly there is a remission rate. So I would see that. It just started getting weird looking at, here's this human body and here they are. There, there's obviously something going wrong. Everybody's inflamed. So we check something called C-reactor protein. So all my patients, high C-reactor protein. There's inflammation going on in their body. Everybody's got some form of diabetes. Either it's insulin resistance or, or somewhere up there. Hypertension, sleep apnea, reflux. I mean, they all have the same kind of symptoms. And these symptoms are not unique to my patients. They're found all over medicine. I start looking around at my non-weight loss surgery patients. They still have, you know, the beginnings of the same things. They're constipated. They're this, they're that. And I started realizing, well, I got these symptoms too. And then my first child was being born. I went to get a life insurance policy test and I found out I had really high cholesterol. It was about 20 pounds overweight. I had hypertension and fatty liver. And I was like, wow. I mean, I got the same things they have. Why do we have this to begin with? This can't be the natural human form. So I started really kind of like realizing that I should be talking about diet. And then I started getting into, well, what is the right diet? I mean, what diet is the right diet to treat these diseases? And that took me, you know, all over the world from the library, (laughs) not actually traveling, but looking at what are the right diets? What does history tell us? What is the actual science? I, I was uh, it was it was like a movie or something for me. Like I'm in the library studies. Like, oh my god, no one ever told me this. Oh my god, I didn't know this. And uh, you know, started on this journey of discovering plant based diets. I think that's fascinating that a doctor in your position could. I mean, I I know what you're talking about. I can relate to it because what, my journey is very similar. I had hypertension and dangerously high cholesterol before I made the switch as well. And I didn't know that doctors like Gregor and Esseltine and and these other doctors even existed. It was a world that completely shut off to me. Yeah. So it's interesting to hear someone in your role feel the same way that mm-hmm. that, that world wasn't even there, and then it Never opened heard up about to any you. of them. Yeah. So now you're open to it. You're knowledgeable on the plant based and, and the evidence based. Moreover, the science because that's what really proves that this works. You started implementing into your patients' routines as well as your own life, and did you see? changes on both immediately? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely did. I mean, again, it wasn't like what the effect was on me. Like I was doing it simultaneously with my patients. It was more, mm-hmm. I've got an evidence-based reason to pursue this. And it's not vegan, all right? Well, I don't go by the terms vegans and ethics that I developed later. Mm-hmm. This was more of a, um, I got to tell people how to eat. That's got to be part of my job as a doctor who's treating obesity. So I I then went on to get board certified in obesity medicine because I found that the obesity medicine doctors were talking about diet. And so I wanted to get board certified in that. And I I was kind of doing it simultaneously with myself and the patients. And I didn't want it to be like it works again. I don't think, I, I mean, there's doctors out there and they go on a diet and it works for them. They think therefore it should work for all their patients. And I don't think that's appropriate. The other thing is I don't like diet. I don't like the term diet. It, it, it just seems so temporary. Like I'm going to try a diet. That That's not what I was looking for. I was looking for how is someone supposed to eat for the rest of their life? And 
I'm not interested in what the weight loss is at six months. I, all the studies that were like, this is the weight loss at six months. I was like, I, that, that's irrelevant to me. I mean, it's interesting that someone could lose weight on a Twinkie diet, all Twinkie diet, but that's not, I'm not going to tell patients to go on. There's many more things that have to be done. You can't just do a Twinkie diet. And so I was much more interested in what are the long-term effects. And I also approached it, well, look, you know, if you follow me, I can't stand, and people think I'm being cocky. It's not cocky. You have to know how to read science. You have to know how to analyze science. People get offended when I told them, you can't possibly understand this. They think I'm calling them stupid. It's not that. You haven't had the training. Like, I wouldn't be offended. Like, if I went and told the pilot how to fly the plane, he's like, you can't possibly understand how to fly a plane. I was like, you know what? You're right. I can't possibly understand how to fly a plane. But to come to a, you can't just read it. People send me articles all the time. Well, what about this article? If that's not how science works, Okay. A scientific argument is a much grander scale theme. It has to have many different components. A study needs to be tested and retested. You need to look at methodology. You need to look at how that methodology varies. So when I was looking at this stuff, I wanted to know epidemiology. you got to know epidemiology because we're never going to have a randomized controlled trial where I say, you eat meat and you eat vegetables for the next 20 years and we'll see what the results are. That's never going to be done. I need to look at epidemiology, cultures that have eaten more meat. I need to know, a lot of people don't understand epidemiology. They think it's univariate analysis. They think that we're just looking at a meat eater and a plant eater, but the plant eater might be running miles and the meat eater might be smoking and that might be the factor and we're missing it. No, we're not missing it. We use statistical analysis called multifactorial regression analysis, which most people don't know about in order to control for confounding factors. This is all boring talk. The bottom line is there's a lot that goes into an epidemiologic study. But then I wasn't just looking at one epidemiologic study. If there was an epidemiologic study in Loma Linda, I also wanted to know that the findings that they had held true in Shanghai or held true in Oxford, England. And then from that epidemiology, I wanted to know mechanism of action. If if meat's bad for you, plants are good for you, why is that? And is the meat different now than it was years ago? Uh, And what's the mechanism of action? Why are we seeing inflammation like I talked about? And what causes inflammation? And then from that, now that we've got mechanism and we've got epidemiology and multiple mechanistic studies, well, then we should put it to the test. What do randomized controlled trials say? And the crazy thing to me is people are always like, there's no evidence that a plant-based, I I hear this all the time on social media, there's no evidence that a plant-based diet works. What? Just because you don't know the research doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There's thousands of studies. I mean, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And then they're like, okay, well, you guys just quote epidemiology. No, no, not at all. We quote randomized controlled trials, very good randomized controlled trials. So, you know, it takes all of that to come up to a scientific decision and, and as a doctor to come up to the medical decision to employ this as a therapeutic tool. I love that. I'm glad you just said that. I was hoping you'd break out that line about just because if you don't know the science, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Because yeah, I see it all the time. It's crazy. Yeah, I love it. And it's true because, I mean, everyone's sitting at home right now. They're on their social and everybody's a doctor and everybody's a scientist and everybody's a nutritionist. They've got the fix, right? And I see all this misinformation out there every day in my Facebook feed. And I'm unfollowing people constantly as a result of it because it's toxic. And it is just that. It's misinformation. And I think it perpetuates an underlying issue that people need to stop sharing bad information and really rely on people like yourself, Gregor, Esseltine, the people that have done the real work, not just all of a sudden became a doctor because they read a blog post, right? 
Oh, so I mean, it's unbelievable. And, and, and you know, people—it doesn't matter what you're looking at, whether it's climate change or vaccines yeah. or this, that, and the other. It's like they send me a YouTube video. They're always sending me YouTube videos. Well, what about this guy? And I'm like, yeah, that guy. First of all, doesn't have a medical license. It's just some random guy on YouTube. Why is that guy's opinion as good as the whole scientific community? People don't understand. I don't know what they think scientific community are. There's a bad doctor in every bunch. There's a bad scientist in every bunch. But as a community. When there's a scientific consensus, you should listen. Yeah, yeah, I believe that all doctors get into the into the profession for the right reason. You're you're generally altruistic humans wanting to help and heal. Most, I mean, there's going to be there's going to be exceptions in in every profession and every rule. But even the doctors that don't have the same opinions as me, for the most, there, there's a keto doctor that I know. He's got good intentions. He's got very good intentions. He's got science to back his claims. I could point out why that science is bad, but he's at least we could have a earnest discussion about the situation, which is vastly different than the stuff that I hear on the internet. No doubt. So let's, let's reel it back into when you started to, and I know you didn't get into it to, to really help yourself per se. You're really looking at the science, but as a result, I mean, you are losing the weight. You Mm -hmm. are feeling better. Your numbers are drastically changing, right? I mean, yeah, the cholesterol plunge. Yeah, it was fun to graph it because it, you, you almost don't believe it's going to happen, right? But the 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 huge just you know complete drop, and I think my LDL started at like one eighty or something like wow. that. It was really high. If you look at the um, there was a study called the Cooper study. Here's another ridiculous thing that I guess the carnivores are saying that LDL cholesterol doesn't matter. I, look, I don't. Yes, it does. That's all I can tell you. There's a thousand studies to show this. But anyway, there was a really good study, which was a 30-year data, 30,000 people out of the Cooper Clinic, where they followed people that were otherwise healthy. No problem. No problems whatsoever. No diabetes, no weight issues, none of that stuff. They just had high cholesterol. And the the mortality rate, if your LDL was above 160 versus 100, was I think something like 35%, 40% higher. It was like really a lot higher. And so uh, I was definitely in a bad category. And I could just see each time I checked my cholesterol, down, down, down. Now my LDL cholesterol runs about 100. That's amazing. Yeah, it does happen. I mean, I'm living proof to it as well. I think my total cholesterol right now is sitting about 132. Mm-hmm. But I was, gosh, Dr. Davis, I was damn near... 250 total prior to this. I mean, it was scary. Yeah. Very scary. It is scary. So let's back up and talk about what you did. Cause I mean, you mentioned that you played football, right? A little bit. Were you, were you an athlete through school? So I I mean, I played football, but I wasn't very good. I was never an athlete. Not at all. Um, and especially after you you get out of high school, I definitely didn't become an athlete after that. I was more of a bookworm, if anything, you know, you go to medical school, go to residency, you're not doing much. So no, I wasn't an athlete at all. Around that time, I started, you know, as I started feeling better, you know, you kind of get in a rut. I, a lot of our patients get in such a rut and you kind of get this idea of who you are. And look, I was a Texan, right? I mean, I was a meat eating, steak eating, uh, you know, Houston was just loaded with these great steakhouses. And that was my favorite thing to do was to eat meat. So when I started doing all the research, I was like, what? I can't eat meat. This was a very, I'm, it was a very tragic thing to me. And I never thought, I was like, I can't switch to not eating meat. I just, I, I can't imagine it. And of course, I didn't switch to not eating meat. I switched to, well, I'm going to eat meat just a few times a week. And then just less and less. And this kind of like gradual changes. But as I was making those changes, I was like, I'm surprised that I actually can change myself. And, you know, I used to see people running and think, what are those crazy people doing? How do they get up and go run? And then I was like, well, if I could do this, maybe I could do that too. And I started really getting into lifestyle and how lifestyle 
you know, has such a huge effect on health. And I was like, well, if I'm going to tell my patients they need to make these lifestyle changes, I definitely want to walk the walk. I want to be an example to them. So I did start becoming an athlete for those reasons. So now you're leading by example and and the the weight, the numbers are changing as we just touched on and and what better thing to do than an Ironman, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, because, you know, I started saying to my patients, you know, because I would see, look, I would see these patients that would do really well after surgery. And I got to this point where I could look at a patient, you know, I'm sitting there looking at a 500 pound guy in his mind, he can't possibly imagine ever going and racing. This is just so out of his idea of himself. And I'm trying to convince him that I could see the him that he can be if he could just make these changes. And so, you know, I always used to have this saying, impossible is a dare. I would kind of challenge him to do the impossible. And so I thought I'll challenge myself. And uh, for me, like, you know, the idea of an Ironman was just so unbelievably impossible. It just seemed like, you know, fiction. And so I thought, well, man, if I could do that, I could do anything. So you did it. I mean, did you start out with an Ironman or did you kind of kind of work your way into it? Worked my way into it. I started with a few smaller, but I had a plan. And, you know, I, I always teach my patient what's called smart goal setting. So, you know, you take simple, measurable steps that are achievable, but with a time frame leading towards a larger goal. So, you know, I had the goal of Ironman, but I'm going to start with a sprint distance, which still seemed impossible to me, but at least it was doable. And I did that and then went to an Olympic and then went to a half and then eventually to the full. But it, the full was always the eventual goal. The others were just steps towards that goal. I love that. I mean, talk about motivation. You're essentially straight off the couch in terms of participating in sporting activities. Yeah. When I started, I was straight off the couch. <laughs> and then to go to the degree of an Ironman, I mean, you did it and you're completely fueled by plants. I mean, that's motivating to all people because typically when they see guys – and gals doing these sorts of things, these people come from backgrounds of swimming or running. I mean, they're, mm. they're legitimate athletes. And that, that's just straight motivation. You're proving that anybody can do this. You just have to have the mental power. I've had a few patients do it. Um, one guy, Marcus, Marcus is, under, I guess he goes under um, Big to Little is his Instagram, if you look him up. He was 500 pounds. And he was like, Doc, I will do anything anything you tell me you tell me i'm gonna do it and he did and he said if i do this you and i are gonna do a triathlon together and i went met him in miami and we did a miami triathlon together one year after his surgery and now he's done four ironman wow you should go to those races because the people don't you you go watch the super uber athletes finish and that's really they're amazing but go late in the day when the when the people are barely finishing and barely, those are the inspiring stories. Those are the stories like Marcus of people that really fought the odds to get there. That's beautiful. That has to be just such a surreal feeling for you as their doctor to uh, be there along the finish line with them. It's That's amazing. just beautiful. Yeah. So Asheville. Yeah. <laughs> now, Dr. Davis, having spent time in both Houston and Asheville, I know those are two drastically different areas. Very and I, drastic. I would imagine lifestyle to some degree what was the motivation to leave Texas and head to the mountains of North Carolina? Oh, there were so many different things. I mean, I had been in Houston all my life, and I just kind of had this this feeling. Yeah, it's all a little bit back to that, you know, impossible as a dare type thing, because I had this big practice in Houston. Everyone was like, you can't possibly leave this. 
but you know, I kind of wanted to read. Watch me. Stuff. Yeah. Watch me. <laughs> Impossible. Let me take that as a dare. Um, it's tough because, you know, I had so many patients there, so many friends, so many family, such a great hospital that I worked for there, but there's no nature in Houston. It was like such a concrete jungle and I didn't want totally. kids growing up in that concrete jungle. And I didn't want to, I wanted to start, you know, being outside and being in nature and, and Asheville had that to offer. And yeah, so we really took a gamble. Uh, my wife and I kind of had like mapped out parts of the uh, different cities we were interested in. Like we didn't want to be in a huge city. We wanted to be somewhere that wasn't too cold. It had to have a lot of outdoor activities, but yet it still had to have culture and arts and restaurants. And, uh, and then I started visiting some of these places. And one of the first places I visited, I went and did a Spartan race in Asheville and, uh, ate at one of the vegan restaurants. And I was like, Hey, this place is awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pack my bags. We're heading out. Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. You know, we don't live too, well, pretty far from Asheville, not really far, but a 10 hour drive. I'm in St. Augustine beach, Florida. Oh, that's nice. And, I'm heard, that's great. Yeah. It's beautiful. That was on our check list, it out. Actually. It was on was our it list. Really? Yeah. Because it fits all those different criteria. Oh, totally. A lot of culture in St. Yeah. Augustine, a little touristy, but I guess Asheville has Same that as, as Asheville. well. It's very touristy. Yeah. Yeah, but you can get away from it. It's not like San Francisco touristy, you know? No, no, no. So we talk about Asheville all the time. The one thing we just can't get past is the snow belt. You know, we've been Floridians for so long. It's hard for us to imagine being in the cold, especially my wife. I mean, she's just so tiny. She shivers in 80 degrees. It's, yeah, yeah. It blows my yeah, mind. Kinda, the, the cold, I don't like the cold. It's not, but it's not terribly cold here. I can't, I mean, it's not even that much colder than Houston in the wintertime. It's just that the winter really? is longer than Houston. Uh, but we don't, we had snow once this whole winter this year. That's not bad. And the, and you touched on, I mean, the restaurants are great. Every time we look up vegan restaurants in Asheville plant, this restaurant plant always sticks out to us. We're like, we got to go there and eat there. The food just looks it's like amazing. there's food and then there's plant food. Oh yeah. Jason is the chef there. He's amazing. Amazing places. Really? Oh, so you oh. go, I, I imagine you frequent there. I frequent there, Laughing Seed, Rosetta's, Elements. And then all the regular restaurants, too, they're all very vegan-friendly. So you just go and say, I'm vegan. No, no problem. We'll set you up. That's great. We got to yeah. do that. So I want to transition and talk a little bit about your book titled Proteinaholic, How Our Obsession with Meat is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. Now, this isn't a new book. In fact, it's been out for almost four years now. However, the current situation with respect to COVID-19 has a lot of people questioning their food sources. So I feel like it's a great time to revisit the science you present in this book. But before we dive into the specifics, what was the motivation to write this book? Well, you know, I'd done all this research. I mean, tons and tons of research. And I was, you know, I would tell patients, look, let's go over a meal plan for a snack. I want you to eat an apple. And then they come back to see me and I look at their meal plan and there's beef jerky or whatever instead of the apple. Why didn't you eat an apple? Well, because the apple doesn't have protein. I need protein. There was this constant idea that I need protein. I need protein. I mean, you do need protein. I mean, everybody needs protein. But this like obsession with getting not just enough protein, but more than enough protein, like as much protein as I could possibly fit in my body, that was getting like, it just became like, oh my God, why does everybody want so much protein? And is there any science to support this kind of like obsession with protein? And so that's where I kind of really approached for the book is to try to dispel some of the myths about protein and to warn about some of the problems with overdoing protein. Yeah, it's it's a reductionist approach, isn't it, when people look at macronutrients versus the whole food, right? I can't stand that. I never talk to my patients about, I need you to eat this much protein and this much carbs and this much. And there's so much research to show that that's just a nonsense way of looking at things. I really like to focus 
on whole foods. So this is the food I want you eating. Let's not talk about the proteins or the carbs. The, you know, you'll get those if you eat these foods. Yeah, exactly. So take our listeners through some of the not so obvious differences between plant-based protein and animal-based protein as it relates to the effect on human health. Mm. Well, I mean, there's, there's two ways to look at it. First of all, it's the protein itself, and then it's the what comes with the protein. So obviously, mm-hmm. when you're eating an animal protein, you're also eating saturated fat, you're getting heme iron. Heme iron is a really bad oxidant. I see doctors tell, oh, your iron's low, eat meat. That's the worst advice you could give someone because the iron that they get with the meat is oxidizing and oxidizes the fat that they're consuming when they're consuming that meat too, which is really toxic for the vessels, which is why meat eaters have much higher rates of heart disease, much higher rates of heart disease than plant-based eaters. Then you can look at the protein itself, the actual protein. Proteins are made up of amino acids. And it comes down to almost like the thumbprint of the amino acid content of each protein. And so you'll hear people say plant-based proteins are inferior to animal-based proteins. They make that assumption based on several things where I would say those differences actually make plant protein superior, not inferior, in that there are certain amino acids such as leucine. So plant-based proteins will have lower levels of leucine. Animal proteins will have higher levels of leucine. Now, if you're trying, if your goal is to become a world-class bodybuilder, then yes, you need leucine. And yes, you could get it through plants, through plant-based protein powders and really, you know, increasing your plant-based proteins, you'll get enough leucine to become a huge bodybuilder. As we've seen on things like Game Changers, you could become a bodybuilder. But the benefit of leucine is it stimulates mTOR and IGF-1. The problem with leucine is it stimulates mTOR and IGF-1. So if you're trying to become a world-class bodybuilder, that extra mTOR, which is a enzymatic pathway, a genetic pathway, it sets off different enzymes that control for genetic codes, it will stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And so you will get more muscle protein synthesis with an animal-based protein and a plant-based protein in an equal sharing. But if you're constantly stimulating mTOR, you, that we also know this is very tied to aging. In fact, a lot of the lead anti-aging researchers, not vegans at all, they're not plant-based researchers, they're researching aging, but have found that the stimulation of mTOR, this chronic constant stimulation of mTOR, drives many of the aging pathways. We also know that the chronic uh, stimulation of IGF-1 is related to cancer growth. And certain cancers, a lot of the cancers we see quite frequently. You combine that with the fact that, you know, animal protein, when you cook it, proteins, uh, they form heterocyclic amines, which are toxic. There's new 5GC, which is an antigen antiprotein. I could go on and on. There's just a lot of stuff in meat that a lot of these, what I talked about earlier, being mechanistic pathways that can lead to cancer formation, aging, things like that. Meanwhile, if you look at plant-based protein, it's higher in glutamic acid. Glutamic acid gets converted to glutathione, which is a very strong antioxidant and excellent for hypertension, which is why you see people on plant-based diet having much lower blood pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Mine dropped, we were speaking of cholesterol earlier, my, my blood pressure dropped into a very safe range. I think I actually took my blood pressure yesterday. I think it was 122 over 72. So, but I mean, I used to be 140 over 90. I mean, it was, you know, scary. Yeah. So as I mentioned, when we started this conversation, there are so many people that still don't understand the health benefits of a whole food plant-based lifestyle. Sadly, many people subscribe to pseudoscience. And I know it frustrates you to no end. 
Why are still people out there deliberately ignoring the evidence-based science as it relates to nutrition and protein specifically? I mean, you see other doctors out there even ignoring it. I mean, we talked about the doctor's show. They're out there just vomiting misinformation. Why yeah, are they still enough, they're being more plant-based now. <laughs> yeah, they? yeah, I've yeah. seen Khan on the show lately, so I wondered. I'm like... Yeah, they've had Khan, they've had Funk, the breast surgeon who's plant-based. Yep, yep. They recently had a carnivore doctor on and, and just roasted him. Look, I, I think part of the problem is... You no, know, you started all that, so that's good. You started yeah. that ripple. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. Look, there's too much information out there, right? There's this thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's this idea... You know, they did these studies... Dunning and Kruger described it with different things. It's a a general idea that someone who's not an expert thinks that they have as much expertise as an actual expert. Some of the tests show that that's not true, that what Dunning-Kruger effect is basically just saying that that you think you know more than you know. And that's what I see a lot out there. I mean, people, you know, they want to engage me in scientific debate. They've never been to a scientific debate. They don't know the basis of debating. It's not that they're dumb. In fact, sometimes I'm pretty impressed with how much they know they know enough to like make them dangerous, actually. It's not that they're dumb. They just haven't had the training. They haven't had the experience. They don't know the breadth of the science. Like, I, listen, I know every single ketosis study out there. I study views different to myself. I want to make sure that my views are correct. And I'm not going to just study. I don't sit in an echo chamber and just listen to plant-based diet doctors. I don't sit in an echo chamber and just listen to vaccines. I, I've studied vaccines so much. It's ridiculous because people challenged me. And I thought, well... That brings up a point. Let me go and see if they're correct. So that's not what the usual person does. The usual person has a mindset, right? They like their hamburger. So they then have to try to justify that hamburger. So they find a guy out there who says, oh, the hamburger is the right way to do this. And that guy puts together an argument that sounds reasonable to them even though it leaves out a whole bunch, but they don't know what it's leaving out because they don't know the breadth of the science. They're like, oh, this guy is justifying my eating of a hamburger, so therefore I'm going to continue to eat the hamburger. And then there's other things that, look, anytime you stop eating ultra-processed food, you're going to do better. So if you go on a carnivore diet, stop eating Doritos and donuts and all the stuff, yeah, you're going to feel better because of that. And and so they then equate that to being healthy. The other thing is people don't have a long-term view on anything right? Everyone acts for the immediate satisfaction. And so a quick short-term weight loss is to them success. To me, short-term weight loss is nothing, nothing. It means nothing to me. I don't care about short-term weight loss. What I care about is what does someone weigh five years after the first time I see them. So those make for really big differences. I mean, you could find any point of view. Relativism is killing us in this country. This idea of fake news that, that Trump started has just backfired because it's almost eliminated facts. Like anything can be argued. I mean, you've got, I'll tell you that meat is bad for you. There's people that say you should eat nothing but meat. That's I mean, it's just preposterous, but people can make that statement. And they're making that statement not based on science, they're making it based on anecdote. And I got these people on, online telling me anecdote is powerful. Anecdote's not powerful. Anecdote is the worst form of science you could possibly do. I wouldn't even call it science. And so it's just this glut of information. We have so much information and not enough knowledge. And that, that really comes down to what the problem is. We need to 86 the misinformation, Dr. Garth. Yeah, it's hard to do it because then you start, you know, then you start getting into. So one of the carnivore doctors was recently turned into the medical board. And I think they were, they turned him into Twitter to try to censor. The other thing is the information they're saying is pretty wrong. But at the same time, should we censor information? 
that becomes kind of tough too. Do you want an Orwellian kind of information is controlled by a few people or do you want a Huxley, there's too much information uh, and it all becomes relativism? I I don't know the answer to that, but I'm not sure I like censorship either. Well, the good thing is is that you're out there championing the the correct message. So if people are following you, they can understand where they can get the real information versus the misinformation. So I get this question all the time as a plant-based chef. Where do you get your protein, Marco? How do you get your protein? And I'm sure you've gotten that question a hundred more times than I have. What's your answer to that when someone asks you that question? Yeah, I mean, look, protein's important. You have to get your protein. In fact, it's so important that nature put it just about everywhere. Right. I mean, it's in places that people don't think it is. It's in your body even if you're not eating because your body breaks down its tissues. It recycles amino acids. And so I, you know, I get my protein from the food that I eat. You know, I get it from plants. I get it from legumes. I get it from nuts and seeds. I get it from dark green leafy vegetables. I get it from broccoli. I get it from all these different things, cruciferous vegetables. You know, I'm certainly not lacking in protein, uh, considering I still do athletics and at 50 years old, I'm, I'm pretty damn healthy. There are situations where you need more protein. If you're doing really competitive sports, you, you need more protein. So generally, people need about 0.8 grams per kilogram per kilogram lean body weight. The recent research is pretty clear that really getting above 1.2, certainly above 1.6 grams per kilogram, is just no benefit. All right. I really, there's so much research on this. Even some of the top bodybuilders now are, are saying 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram lean body mass. So for me, that's like 96 grams of protein a day. That's like to really get a lot. And I do a lot of athletics. I'm training for a marathon right now. So I should be trying to get 96 grams of protein. Do I do that? No, I don't. I, because I don't need to win the marathon. All right. I don't, I, I don't need to get the, you know, I'm more concerned about, you know, how I age and how healthy I am and, and, and things like that. I eat very healthy. I eat lots of beans. I eat a lot of tofu. Do I get 96 grams of protein some days? Yeah, I probably do. Do I ever use protein supplements? Sometimes, like when I get done with a run, that's a good time to read nourish my body. Uh, typically, I want four carbohydrates to one gram of protein. I'm not going to get that with food right away because I don't feel like eating. So I make a shake that's got protein and fruit and vegetables in it. Yeah. Um, but I never count. No. It goes right back to what we touched on earlier, that reductionist mentality. You don't count it. Just eat the real food and you're getting enough, typically. Exactly. So you kind of answered my next question, which was how much does a person really need? So we won't cover that. And we're going to land this thing down here pretty soon. But before we do, is there anything you'd like to add that I may have missed? I know, I know that the message here is really to eat a comprehensive whole food plant-based diet like we've touched on a couple of times. Right. But is there anything that you'd like to add to the conversation that I may have overlooked? Yeah, I think we hit on it. I think my main issue lately is just the misinformation. I mean, just be careful. Someone yeah. sends you a YouTube video. That's not the facts. It really isn't. And, you know, there's going to be differing opinions out there. And that's important because, look, plant-based diet, you know, it kind of started as a different opinion. When I started doing plant-based diets, you know, it was – not in any way a medical consensus. It's still not a medical consensus, but at least there's thousands and thousands of doctors and scientists that are recommending it now. There's going to be difference in opinion, but check your sources. Look into this more carefully. Don't trust a YouTube video. Research with an open mind views that are opposite than your own. Don't get into an echo chamber. People get into an echo chamber way too easily. They just want to hear 
what they want to hear. It's called confirmation bias and confirmation bias is everywhere. And then people say, well, you've got confirmation bias. Not in the least bit. I am constantly questioning myself. I'm constantly wanting to know, am I giving out the best information? Is there something you I need to know? And, um, and so I just, I want other people to do that too. So what you're saying, Dr. Davis, is you're not backed by big kale. Yeah, by big kale or big pharma. I mean, all these people say, you're getting all this money from big pharma to say this. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's people preposterous. Are, it's so preposterous. People have this idea that every doctor is on a payroll. Do you know how unbelievably untrue and unethical? We have so many boards that oversee it. Where I can't take a pen from a drug company and let alone like money. I mean, it's like if I, if I take a pen from a drug company, I'd lose my life. It's just ridiculous. Oh, man. Lifetime supply of kale for you, Dr. Davis. We just yeah. need you to go ahead and, you know, say yeah. this. Yeah, <laughs> no. Definitely not definitely happening. Not happening. No. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to land this thing. Thank you kindly for joining me, Dr. Davis. Your message resonates with so many people, myself included. Thank you for all you do to help humanity. You're the genuine article, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Thanks, Marco. All right, everyone. That was Dr. Garth Davis. Be sure to check my show notes for links to his social. You want to follow him. Trust me, it's highly informative and entertaining. Until the next time, peace, love, and plans. If there's an image next to the definition of authenticity, I'm convinced it must be an image of Dr. Garth Davis. I mean, talk about backing up your words with action. He's living proof from helping to heal his patients with evidence-based science to his own personal health journey and lifestyle transformation. The real deal. I am truly grateful and humbled that Dr. Davis took the time to speak with me and with you. His message is powerful and, as I'm sure you detected, sincere. I'll close it out on this. Not all that long ago, I had no idea that there was a world of plant-based doctors that fully support this lifestyle through evidence-based research. I was completely oblivious. It took my own personal health scare to open my eyes. It's that experience that helps me stay grounded when I see people lost in their journey or confused on where to start. It also keeps me humbled and reminds me to be a positive influence by way of action and to always be a messenger of truth. It's my belief that we all have an obligation to take stock in what message we put out into the world. For me, I try my best to spread a message of positivity while staying clear of the misinformation. I sincerely hope that you do as well. Just imagine the beneficial impact it would have if enough of us collectively aligned in that message. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. And if you're so inclined, give it a share, a like on my social, or even a positive rating. That's all for this week. Stay healthy out there, my friends. Until next time, peace, love, and plants.